Silver, a show about sports, art, and the space they share. My guests today are Professors Kyle Green, Alex Manning, and Stefan Chosa. We are discussing an essay the three of them wrote collectively entitled Discursive Footwork on the Hardwood. This piece of writing discusses the possibilities and limitations of the NBA as a space for progressive values around addressing and dismantling systemic racism. We also, of course, discuss current ongoings around the WNBA and the NBA's reopenings, and I'm going to hold off on saying too much more about them individually because they each have an introduction uh, on the episode where they explain a little bit about uh, their work and how they came to basketball and, and what they teach. And please check out the show notes for links to the uh, stories, the Player Tribune stories that we referenced today in our discussion, as well as a link to Kyle's uh, podcast that he has called Give Theory a Chance, which is a podcast devoted to the foundational ideas that inspire thought and action. So be sure to check out that show too. And I am just so grateful the three of them came on to uh, sort of talk about you know their paper, but also uh, in in the context of what is happening right now around basketball's reopening and, and what that means. And yep, we got to laugh and also talk about some really weighty, timely issues. So thank you so much to all three of them, and I hope you all enjoy. Okay, so thanks so much, you guys. I think that um, Kyle and I first emailed. Uh, back in August of last year, uh, and we talked immediately about doing a podcast about some of all of your writing. And like almost a year later, we're finally getting together to do it. So, but I think at this opportune moment, um, about two days after the WNBA has started playing again, and three days before the NBA opens up, it feels like this conversation at this time uh, and at this point that our country is at is uh, more important than ever. So. Thank you so much for, for joining to discuss um, this curse of footwork on the hardwood and uh, everything else that's happening right now around the NBA. So if you could all, the three of you, introduce yourselves so we get an idea of, of who you are and where you're coming from. Kyle, please. Okay. <laughs> I, was being, I was being polite. Uh, so I am Kyle Green. I am a professor of sociology at SUNY Brockport. And I think you all, did you also want to hear about our any of our basketball or, or academic background? I will, yeah, academic and fandom backgrounds, yes. Okay. Or, so non, or your, what you like, what you don't like, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in terms of fandom, it kind of leads into the academic background. So um, I grew up uh, when I was very, very young. I was a Detroit Pistons fan that uh, later transformed into a Supersonics fan during the era of Gary Payton and Sean Kemp, which I think every young kid was obsessed with those that duo. Um, and then... My bit, my height of fandom was with the Sacramento Kings during the Weber and Jason Williams and then Bibby years. Um, but I, I grew up in central New York in a very rural town, so I didn't really have an NBA team, so I kind of switched around. Um, but as I went forward as an academic, I was always interested in sports and culture, and the NBA was something that I carried with me. I was fascinated with it as a cultural space. I became fascinated with it as a political space. My main research is on mixed martial arts um, and the meaning pe people make through participating in sport and physical activity. But the NBA was something that I was always attached to. And it was also something that brought together Alex and Stefan and I. And, uh, and we could talk a little bit about that when 
we talk about the origin of this paper, uh, but the NBA has always been something that I've been fascinated by, both from an academic, but also from a fan perspective. Great. Is your Detroit Pistons fandom why you dislike Scotty Pippen as it, a player? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so when I grew up, I still remember when I was really young and playing basketball in my backyard, I would always play against Isaiah Thomas. So he was, he was my hero that I would, that he taught me how to play basketball. So I had to root against the Bulls and I always disliked Jordan. I always disliked Pippen. Um, I didn't mind Horace Grant. So all yeah, right, well, but I, I never was a fan of the Bulls. It's good to have it out in the open ASAP, I think, yeah. <laughs> on the show. Alex. Yeah, hi. I'm Alex Manning. I'm a professor, assistant professor of sociology at Hamilton College in New York. Um, basketball fandom is all tied to the city of Seattle, so that's where I grew up. And similar to Kyle, uh, the supersonics of Peyton and Kemp are etched in my mind forever. Uh, you would go to like a game a year at one, the Tacoma Dome before then when they were in Tacoma while they were building a new arena. So that was the, the rise. And when they played the Bulls, I was young. That was probably one of my first distinctive sports memories um, or teams that I can remember and kind of recite rosters and stuff. Um, and also in terms of how I got into uh, being a sociologist, scholar of sports and race is definitely personal and basketball is a part of that, but really about learning for me, being interested in how the social world worked is very much tied to uh, how sports kind of wove through uh, experiencing a city like a sort of liberal, mostly white city as a black person, um, but understanding segregation, educational tracking, and how sports kind of wove through. So for me, the basketball in particular, Seattle is a, is, a, is a basketball hotbed, so you'd see kind of blackness be central, right, but within this kind of liberal white uh, society, uh, city, um, and then also this other sports. So I study a lot of, of soccer and other sports as well. So seeing the class and racial dynamics within all of these sports, and for sure, basketball is one of them. And kind of, and as we get, as we get older, definitely seeing the NBA as like this kind of, you know, globalized space of it. Um, so for sure, and then tied to that, if you talk to me about any, all my favorite players are tied to undersized guards from Seattle who shoot too much. <laughs> AKA Nate Robinson, Jamal Crawford, Brandon Roy didn't shoot too much. Brandon Roy, there's all these Seattle guards uh, that made it the mm -hmm. NBA. So that's kind of my fandom is now kind of just following Seattle guys, and then I don't have a team anymore uh, because of OKC. Yeah, and now you're in upstate New York, which yes. is the, that dead zone of the NBA. So you're <laughs> you're you're learning the freedom it gives you, but also yeah. the challenge. Yeah, so definitely a NBA nomad. That's how I kind of okay. Yeah, nice. And Stefan. Hi, I'm, I'm Stefan Chosa, assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Women's and Ethnic Studies program at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, or UCCS for short. I'm also a faculty member at the Center for Critical Sports Studies at UCCS, which is, or which was founded and no longer headed, but previously headed by another sports sociologist, Jeffrey Montes de Oca. Um, let's see. So of, of us three, or the three co-authors at least, um, I've probably taken the most circuitous, circuitous path to studying sport. So I am not originally a sports scholar or sports sociologist. I've been a fan of sport since, I mean, as long as I can remember. But um, my introduction to sport came through, or sports sociology came through my original interest in race, ethnicity, gender, um, culture. And so through those topics, um, I've 
ended up having conversations with people like Kyle and Alex and um, co-authoring uh, co-authoring pieces here and there. And so, uh, let's see. Um, in terms of my own fandom, I, I grew up in uh, LA. I was born and raised in LA, Los Angeles, LA County. And so, obviously, my fandom lies with LA area sports teams, in particular with the Lakers and um, the Los Angeles Dodgers. But in terms of basketball, like that was the first sport that I really loved. And um, like as an, as a child of immigrants, like I I wasn't allowed to watch TV at all growing up. Like watching TV, like watching live sports, was like a huge privilege. And so, but my parents didn't know that I could also listen to listen to basketball like simulcasts um, using uh, on the radio. So I had a pocket Walkman. <clears throat> I'd listen to uh, uh, every single Lakers game growing up, um, unbeknownst to my parents. And like I grew up with the voices of Chick Hearn and Stu Lance and. Um, like the, my earliest, my earliest favorite team was the, I'd say 96, 97 Lakers with like Nikolai Nexel, Eddie Jones, Cedric Zavalos. I think Shaq joined the next year. I forget exactly when it was, but, and Kobe, Kobe also. And, um, that, that was really where my love of basketball came to be. Um, I was never really a, a Seattle Supersonics fan, unlike the other two years, but, um, I, I definitely rooted for them when they were playing the Bulls. I don't like the Bulls either growing up. That's, that's 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 me, my my interests and uh, my fandom in a nutshell. Yikes! Well, I feel like the need at this point to defend the Chicago Bulls, but I don't want to spend any time <laughs> wasted on that since pretty much the whole world is is on my side. Maybe separate from yeah, it's pretty rare to get three NBA fans and all of us dislike the Bulls. Right. <laughs> and I think the Rockets would have beat them if they played, but that's another thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we'll just never know. <laughs> another can of worms. Right. So um, I think I would love to start off just by talking a little bit about this recent piece that you wrote when I'm not sure exactly when when it sort of the idea for this came to be um, as a, a piece that you would work on together, the discursive footwork on the hardwood um, and how it formed. But I just want to, I want to read a couple um, quotes from the beginning of it, just to give everyone an idea about what we're sort of going to be discussing. And then if you all just want to talk about how, because I think, you know, reading this the past couple of weeks and at this moment, it's like, there's, it's so uh, pertinent to what we're dealing with right now in the news about the NBA, the content of this, of this essay that you wrote. Um but I'm just wondering about, you know, it, it is always pertinent, but particularly now it, it feels really important to be discussing. And, and so it's just, uh, just, I want to know the sort of the beginnings of it as well. Um, so I've practiced reading this a few times, but since they're not my words, just forgive me if I stumble. Um, so how do nuanced discussions about race and racial politics emerge in a sporting space that is publicly celebrated and advertised as socially progressive, diverse, and a leader in racial equity, and simultaneously deemed problematically colorblind and quietly racially oppressive by numerous scholars? So for me, that question embodied what the, what the paper is attempting, what your paper is attempting to answer. Um, in many ways. And the other part is the NBA is seen as a place of happy cultural exchange and a leader of post-racial cosmopolitan inclusion. Reproduction of this racially liberal and linearly progressive conception of the NBA perniciously squashes potential of accurate and insistive conceptions of race in the United States. 
At the other end of the binary, these same players tap into a more anti-racist and critical paradigm that understands the NBA as deeply linked to racial identity, racism, and social problems. So I had just pulled these two sections out of the sort of beginning of the, the introduction to your, to your content as a way of, of giving the listeners an idea about what we're going to be discussing and in the hopes that that would spark some, some memories from you about how this whole project began. I could talk a little bit about the origin of it, and then I'll let Alex take over explaining those words, <laughs> because I think he wrote both of those sentences. Um, so so the, piece, the piece came what I think is an interesting way, because we, were, we shared our NBA fandom uh, when we were all going to University of Minnesota for grad school, which I think is an important uh, thing that we didn't note. So we all went to grad school together, and we would go and watch basketball games in the playoffs together. Um, and then no mention as, of the Timberwolves yet at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> strangely. Yeah, how does that work? Okay, they're, yeah. they're, 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 a, they're a dark cloud. <laughs> I think collectively we were in Minneapolis for like a decade. And did they make the playoffs no. even once no. during that time? No. I don't no. know if they had a winning record. <laughs> they might have not had a winning record. Yeah. They were good with Adelman. I, but anyway, all right. So that's a, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just had to interject. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, but so as academia often does, when we finished our degrees, we all went to different corners of the country and we kept a text exchange going where we would talk about basketball games. We'd often, when we were watching basketball games, be commenting on it. And the conversation would both be talking normal fan talk, you know, who's playing well, who's not playing well. But we would also talk about the politics surrounding the game and we all came at this from different, somewhat different intellectual backgrounds. But I don't think any of us were satisfied with the way sports, in particular the NBA, was talked about because we saw the classic, as those sentences were bringing up, we saw the classic critique from scholars that focused on the, the ways that the NBA and all sports actually was this conservative force in society that reproduced the, uh, some of the racial dynamics and power dynamics that you would expect in other institutions. Um, and we were also frustrated with the over-the-top celebration that the NBA often had for itself as being this racial utopia. And we saw it as a place where there was cultural exchange happening, and we saw some of the limitations. So we wanted to explore what possibilities could there actually be in this space while acknowledging that it wasn't perfect. Um, and, and that also goes to our own biographies, thinking about our own r racial dynamics being fans of sport in these different areas. Me growing up in a rural area that was completely white and my exposure in a sense to black culture was through the NBA and through participating in basketball. Alex growing up in a progressive, relatively white city, but also being exposed to basketball. Uh, Stefan talking about his experience. So we came at it from a different directions, but we were all really curious, like what are the possibilities? Right. The possibilities. And as you address in the essay, like the, the failures, you know, like what is possible and what is, what is, what is not possible. Alex. Yeah. So I think what I was trying to get at with some of these questions, those sentences and Kyle mentioned it too, right? The idea, right. That the sport is not always in the NBA is celebrated as this model, right? This model for, social inclusion, particularly on racial inclusion, right? This model, this model of meritocracy. And scholars have widely and accurately, for the most part, given us a sharp critique of that. Um, but at times, I think it does, it basically, it, it eliminates the idea that basically sports is always a battleground, 
right? It's it's a con it's a contest socially, not just in, on the court, right? Or the or the performances. And so, it's particular in this moment. I think um, about the NBA, particularly around Trayvon Martin, that's kind of the first catalyst, right? Where kind of politics at a mass scale and totally the Black Lives Matter movement kind of becomes front and center. And you saw the first kind of players were wearing hoodies. LeBron James spoke out. Um, they did like a thing at the ESPYs. I think Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony. There was these more kind of overt moments of discussing, right, uh, anti-Black violence. Um, so that was all coming to the, at the forefront. Um, but then I think when we, in our conversations, we'd also see other types of conversations, which gets, gets to the Players' Tribune, or you'd see kind of Jeremy Lin, right? Um, he, like his, his, his rise happens, right? So then you have discourses about Asian American experience, right? With or, you know, sport that's understood black and white. Um, and then I think with the Players' Tribune, we've now seen like actually athletes speaking directly right, and actually articulating in longer forms about how they experience this particular and unique uh, space that is uh, the NBA and basketball culture, um, for sure, so. Yeah, and just to add to that a little bit, I think, um, uh, so we've mentioned so far the shortcomings of the existing kind of like canon, both like in terms of journalists, popular journalism and the critical scholarship. And what we found is that there wasn't much like in between, like there wasn't much, the, the discussions weren't, um, I'd say like overtly like nuanced. And so what we were hoping to do was perhaps by changing the level of analysis and um, also the methodology by which these analyses are done, um, getting at a perspective that hasn't been really shared before. Because like when it comes to like critical scholarship, overwhelmingly it comes from like a top down um, institutional um, narrative or like looking at those in power, like owners and uh, those those who are part of the NBA administration, the league offices, and very rarely do the voices of players actually make their way into any form of scholarly analysis. And um, I think, especially given this current historical moment, looking at how things have changed, especially over the past decade, with the with the, like with the, um, with the advent, if you will, of, of social media and and NBA professional athlete participation in social media. That narrative has, has definitely changed over the past decade. And so we're wondering how, if we were to actually thoroughly examine um, the narratives provided by the athletes themselves, how that would, would perhaps contest and complicate the existing narratives that on the one hand overly celebrate um, the NBA as a progressive racial space. Like every year there's a report card that comes out and the NBA always receives an A plus. And so there's that end. And there's the there's a, there's a other end that's like overtly critical of the NBA and it's kind of like colorblind and post-racial logics and, and it's, it's management of, of racialized bodies. So like uh, we wanted to, to see if by analyzing or by providing a different lens, we come at it from a different, different angle. And, and part of the motivation was also selfish. Um, both Alex and I teach sport and society and there are not that many great articles to assign to students talking about athletes engaged in politics. So there's articles talking about athletes not being engaged in politics. And there's great books looking at the history of the NBA as an institution that kind of hides or tries to control blackness and then later tries to commodify it. But there just wasn't, as, as Stefan was pointing out, looking at what the players are actually doing. Um, and so I, I wanted that article to exist, which is always a good motivation. 
Right. And I think that there, so you basically, you pulled four um, articles or essays from the Players' Tribune to look at through this lens of how, how racism functions within the NBA and how those, the players themselves are responding to it or, or handling it. Is that right? Yeah. So we had, um, uh, Stefan had a teaching assistant. Um, can you remind me her name? We should shout out to Reagan Abernathy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and Reagan went through over 700 articles from the Players Tribune and coded them for just the uh, uh, articles focused around basketball and coded them based on the major theme, um, what type of issues players were writing about. And we wanted to focus specifically on articles that de- dealt with race and power specifically in the sports space of basketball. So there were a number of articles where athletes would talk about um, you know, some something that happened in society or social action like encouraging voting or Jalen Rose writing about starting a charter school. But we, we really wanted the times that athletes would reflect on what happens in the space itself, what happens as an athlete in regards to race, in regards to exchanging culture. Um, so we focused in on those four articles and then we coded them to try to understand what words are players using, what narratives or ideas are they drawing on? And then also, what are they not talking about? Right. So, and then how many of those, um, how many of those articles did you then like call it down to these particular four by Blake Griffin, Jeremy Lin? Um, I'm losing the thread uh, of the other two. Jason Collins and um, uh, Kyle Korver. So those were the four that end up being in this essay. And I was just wondering how, because they, they do show a range of perspectives and, and all four of these men have come from different places and have different thoughts on this or are approaching this discussion with different um, sort of storylines or experiences that they're bringing into their writing. And um, I'm just wondering how those were, were chosen specifically. So if we were to look at pieces that discuss race, um, there were probably several dozens of them, if not maybe even over a hundred. Um, but uh, if we were to look at, if, if we were to kind of like whittle that down to articles that where the players not only discuss race and like racial identity, but specifically within the context of sport and that sport being the NBA, or that, that sport, that league being the NBA in particular, then what we found were simply those four articles that go in depth about the role that kind of like sport and the NBA can play in discussions, um, discussions about race and racism. Uh, when that was the case, when we finished out the, the essay a few weeks ago, since then I'd imagine some things like that, that number has increased a bit given uh, the recent posts after the murder of George Floyd. Um, but at that point, there were four articles or essays that comprehensively examined race within the context of the NBA and not external to it. And that was what we, what we were really hoping to, to focus on given uh, much, of our, much of our argument um, centered around this notion of the NBA as a contested racial terrain. And so we're looking at how these players and they are uh, former and current players um, are negotiating that, um, that space. And I add, go ahead, Carl. Oh, no, you go, Axel. So I'd add, right, so in addition to that, that they actually talked about race within the context of the NBA, right, so it wasn't just 
uh, outside and their reflections about contributing to society. Um, you also had players um, talking about their experiences of racism, right? The exchange, cultural exchange dynamic. Um, you had then people thinking about what sports should do, what, what, what should the NBA accomplish with regards to race? What could it lead to? Um, and then also even how the NBA ref led to more critical reflections about what race is, thinking about the Corvus piece in particular, right? About what whiteness actually is, how the NBA facilitated that. So those four cases also led to kind of these kind of different uh, pathways, right? These kind of pathways of how race is understood and experienced within the NBA. Yeah, and, and going in, we expected there to be more than four pieces. Yeah. These were at least two of them um, the Jeremy Lin piece the Kyle, and the Kyle Korver piece, that was part of the inspiration for going through the Players' Tribune and seeing what was there. And we were surprised to only find four. So that allowed us to do real in-depth analysis of those, but we expected it to be a much bigger sample. Okay. Um, and of course, of those four essays, it kind of breaks down that Kyle Korver's essay is the one that addresses uh, the racism that exists within the NBA as a systemic issue of the institution that is, you know, reflective of, of the racism that exists outside the NBA rather than it being a personal issue. So in the case of the Blake Griffin essay, we have the discussion of Donald Sterling um, being the problem and that Steve Ballmer is not, does not, he's not the same person. And also he's not, he's not an, he does not have the same problems that, that Donald Sterling has. Um, whereas Kyle Korver, Corver's piece focuses more on the institution of the NBA being unable to separate itself from, from racism itself. Is that, is that how it sort of, and I mean, Jeremy Lin and Jason Collins are in there as well, but it, it sort of, it broke down that Kyle Corver's essay was the only one that actually addressed the institution of racism. I, I'd say that's a correct assessment. So that's something that we actually also Kind of conflicted about or how to write about this, um, especially as we were kind of outlining the paper itself. And uh, like, so how do we go about this without celebrating the one, the one white American player in this in this list for being the most like quote unquote woke, right? So um, I think all of I, all the players and all the narratives within those four pieces engage uh, or acknowledge racism to some extent. Uh, but uh, they come at it from different angles. So not all of, not, not, not everybody is willing to recognize the NBA as a space that's complicit within this, as um, the NBA as being an institution within the broader society that's also reproducing race, uh, racism and racist norms. And you're right, so Kyle Corvers is the only piece of the four, as far as we, we read, that um, critically engages and reflexively engages with, um, with that theme. Uh, but that isn't to like, um, like uh, undermine any of the other, other other pieces. I feel like they all in some way attempt to directly engage, are all racially conscious, in other words. And um, they try, they either call out racism and or um, attempt to address racism too. Uh, but the perspectives, of the perspectives provided, I'd say the Corver piece is the most comprehensive, especially in its, in its addressing of, of like of privilege, of power, and um, the role that the NBA and NBA players play with not only them within the league, but um, within the broader society. Mm -hmm. And I want to say too, um, for sure, I th the race consciousness part is crucial, I think, and, and should not be undersold. 
because right historically basically post Jordan era scholar scholars and um, and I'd actually say a lot of popular commentators right have always talked consistently talked about NBA players or the, particularly the black athletes even though it should be all athletes right as not naming race right not naming racism and so we're actually seeing these players of different status right and actually they're not and, and, and they're not ostracized right it's not like a Craig Hodges situation or I always forget the man from Denver. What's the Denver player? Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. Yeah, right. So it's not, so it wasn't, these cases where actually racism is named, right? They're not necessarily, um, and they're named kind of publicly and kind of matter of factly. So that, just to kind of emphasize kind of even that as a contribution or something to take note of, right? Is that, that's one of the shifts um, that yes. runs through all. Yeah. Yeah. So even, even when Jason Collins and Blake Griffin ended up returning to the NBA as a space of, unity and almost a space where they could band together with other team teammates and escape racism they first named it right and that was like alex was saying that's that's an important move in itself um and it's also thinking about kyle corver as a white player he points to the nba as a place where he learns about in a sense learning about race existing blake griffin and jason collins and jeremy lynn didn't need to play basketball to learn that race existed so it's, it's not surprising they take a different approach to explaining what the space does for them. Right. And it's, it's almost with, with the case of Jeremy Lin um, and when he was growing his dreadlocks and he had the back and forth with Kenyon Martin about Kenyon Martin's tattoos. It's, it's almost as if the only shortcomings of that are that it didn't, it didn't go further. Like the conversation didn't go further than what it was, but the, the, the conversation, the, what he started was so rich with, um, there was so much importance and value in what he started by, by, you know, initiating this conversation. And the, the only issue is that it just didn't continue. Um, so just, Oh. Right. So, I mean, that was really that piece and that, that incident was really what drew us into this topic in the first place, given how, how unique it was. Right. So uh, one of the few Asian American players, currently in the history of the NBA, um, not only is he donning dreadlocks, but he's also actively talking about it and seeking advice, criticism, and a reflection from people, from, uh, from, from external, external sources. And so that was, that was monumental in and of itself. I mean, so in, in the piece that we wrote, we also were in some ways critical because we felt that it could go further, as you mentioned, that it, it, he definitely recognized that racism, what, what racism was, and that cultural appropriation is a thing. But for him, it's it's the, the MBA and the medium of the MBA serves as a space for this cultural exchange without larger acknowledgement of um, of the structures and the power structures at, at play. Right, and so that was really one of the shortcomings we felt of an otherwise like really important piece and moment. And I mean, that's, and also that's changed, I'd say, I'd say to some degree with this more recent piece in the Players' Tribune that was um, authored, I think, um, in, in May or June, uh, mm -hmm. where he discusses anti-Asian racism um, in light of the COVID pandemic. And so even there, we see, we do see a shift. We, did, we didn't discuss it in, in the piece in, in large part because he's no longer an NBA player. And um, he also doesn't implicate the NBA in, in, in the piece, but, uh, we, we see how those discourses narratives can and have changed. And uh, yeah, that, that was really kind of the, the impetus for uh, our examination of the of other pieces throughout the, the Players' Tribune, because we knew that Jeremy Lin couldn't have been the only one 
to to directly engage and call out and try to address racism in his, in his essay. Yeah. And I want to say that one of the reasons the MBA is so interesting and compelling um, because it as an because blackness is central and visible. And yes, and we acknowledge that well, we'll probably just talk about this. The, the implications of power and commodification, right, and capital, but also that we see through the players by looking through Jeremy Lin's experiences or Corver's, right, they're actually giving us a window into um, what happens when a place that is central around blackness, but also open to other people to interact, to other people from racial backgrounds. And so that, I think that gives us the possibilities, right? The NBA itself as a culture, basketball culture, gives us the opening to see, right, this interaction between Lynn that through Jeremy Lynn's eyes or through Corver's eyes. And, or even in this case, even and you could see this with other players as well. Um, I think the NBA, I think the NBA is one of the few places where that happens. Like there aren't other sports um, leagues and even sports cultures really where kind of blackness is central and you have other groups come through, come through that actually experience that's this is the power of the players, right? Cause we focus just on the owners of the power structure you miss what is actually happening uh, in these interactive uh, moments. So I think the Lynn piece is a great example of that. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and in general, I would say that Jeremy Lynn is, is a person that is very open about sort of, I mean, he just comes forward on many different things. I, I remember he was discussing also that how sad, how sad it made him that his team, the Toronto Raptors won last year and he didn't play. Um, and just, he, he is willing to be vulnerable, um, in a way that I don't think, um, it, that's just not the standard, uh, behavior of, of athletes in general to sort of open up about, about things like that, especially, uh, in regards to, to race. And, and there was so much, I mean, Jeremy Lin, Jeremy Lin's entrance into the NBA sparked so much conversation, um, in, in many ways from, from and that was both uh, I don't know how he took it, but like negative and positive around his around his skills uh, and all of that. So it's, yeah, he that is an important thing to to recognize what space he's in when he is uh, sharing all of that. And, and I think there's just so many spaces for players to engage in that type of reflection that did not exist before. So we're using the Players Tribune. Uh, it made sense for a way to look at their actual writing. It was a kind of bounded unit that we could study, but. There are not only podcasts, but podcasts that are run by other players, which there's some great conversations. And Jeremy Lin has been on podcasts with uh, Danny Green. Um, I can't remember if you appeared on the one that Vince Carter has, but they have those type of conversations. And you're also seeing players be more vulnerable in those spaces because they're with other players and it's not guided by the media. So I think I think that's an important thing, too. And we're hoping with future studies to start to look at what happens in those podcast spaces. But it's also it's a there's so many of them. Um, but I, I think that's important too in thinking about how these conversations are going. Not only is there a shift, we do think there's a shift in how players are talking about race, but it's also because now we can hear players talking about race where before we just weren't here. We didn't have access to those conversations. And even the inclusion of the players' voices in an academic paper, like you're saying before, you weren't able to, that wasn't, that's not happening. Just this idea of um, putting uh, their voices in a different context, I think, carries a lot of weight as far, uh, to sort of change course and how we consider the value of their voices, where we think their voices have have value and should be heard. 
So great job deciding to do that. Um, <laughs> Shout I wanna, out to you guys. <laughs> I just want to try to articul- articulate the point I was making for maybe a little better, but or make it the scope of it a little bit more. So, right, the NBA in particular sports, really in American society, there aren't that many instances or spaces where blackness um, is center and actually kind of in a way like has some type of power, right? Like agency, right? That other groups come into and interact with and they don't just consume passively, right? So there's lots of conversation like hip hop, right? Hip hop, the art forms that have been consumed passively and commodified by their audience. That happens in the NBA for sure. <laughs> and the NBA profits off that. But through these players, we can actually see um, how we can see that the interaction happens, which doesn't happen for most people in society because of segregation, right? Because of our historical legacies of racism. So actually you have this particular space where you can actually see some exchange happen, some interaction happen. Um, and then there's a lot of possibilities, not, all, not always happy and diverse, which we don't, which we talk about in the paper, but there's actually then the possibility. And it's not just a sort of passive consumption. Yeah, and I, I guess that's a really good point that separates fans from players also. So as a fan, you can easily consume blackness and not have to engage with any critical reflection. But when you're on a team, you're in some pretty intimate spaces and also long-term, a lot of hours are spent with your teammates. So it really forces that type of reflection. Yes, um, absolutely. That, I mean, now I'm just, I'm trying, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think if there are other spaces like that in the United States um because when when you when you put it in that way it it does seem so sort of singular um i mean especially also with the nba being a more international league that um than than the other major sports or at least with base, baseball and football that well maybe not baseball well yeah i think i think more international than baseball but i mean as far as where all the different places that players are coming from um but it, it so it just there there are also different um, blackness can mean many things within that space, perhaps. Yeah. And football is an interesting comparison because if you just look at, if you look at players as labor, right, there's a lot of black players in the NFL, but it doesn't have the same type of cultural coding or power centered around blackness. Right. So even, even many of the most celebrated and highest paid players are white, they're quarterbacks. And you still hear that. And you hear many of that more traditional, sports narratives in football than I think you do in the NBA. Would, would you agree with that, Stefan and Alex? Go yes. for it, Stefan. <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm happy with this, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's something that I've been kind of struggling with recently too, because so much of uh, sports sociology, uh, I would argue, seems to kind of lump these leagues together. Um, NBA, NFL, as again, using kind of a neo-Marxist perspective, whereby the leagues and the owners are exploiting those who the, the laborers, in this case, laborers and players. And uh, but when I when we when we do comparison between leagues like the NFL and NBA, clearly there's a difference, both in terms of how um, they are present themselves, how um, like the role that players have within those leagues, and the, the public perception of those leagues too. So again, I think part of this goes back to I think the the draw, the motivation for us to to want to look at how players are negotiating these spaces, given the limitations inherent within those leagues. Because obviously the leagues also um, place limitations and barriers and boundaries upon the actions of the players, especially when they're 
when they're on court or any any kind of league function. But still, we we see how the players themselves are acting within within those boundaries, negotiating those boundaries too actively. Yeah, I mean, just within the world of sports, let's try to think of spaces where um, where players themselves this can be professional or not, where they actually there is where the power dynamics shift, where blackness isn't sort of marginalized, or even other groups of color aren't explicitly marginalized. Um, that's why I think basketball is a little different. The NFL, for sure. I think even the way it's structured, the sport, <laughs> right? There's like very strict positional differences. Um, the way how much power coaches have, right? Changes the dynamics of what kind of culture is central. Um, and then also too, like oftentimes when we talk about race and sports too, basketball is different because blackness is central, right? And so race com- comes up. Right, we can pick other major kind of uh, sports, or even less major sports. Race does not come up in the same ways. Um, I even think whether it's soccer or baseball, right? As Black Americans have been erased through more of a globalized Latino and Asian and global diaspora, right? So the the conversation shift and the power the power sources of what type of conversations can exist uh, for sure change. So yeah, back to the NBA is different for sure. Yeah. And, and not always. And again, we don't want to be over celebratory, right? It's different. It doesn't mean it's always been the most progressive and perfect no, space. No. There's definitely, definitely that same type of racial coding about what the right way to play is. Um, when, when blackness is too black, right? We can look at the history of, of try of dress codes, um, pushback after the malice in the palace, which we write about in the paper. Um, but still there's something very different about the space. Yes. And I think that as, um, as an NBA fan and I just, it is easy to fall into the trap of, well, Adam Silver handled the Donald Sterling situation so well with, you know, getting him pushed out of the league. Um, so we're, we're good, <laughs> you know, like that, that because of, of, of specific actions that have been taken um, over the past, I guess it's six years that, uh, and I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's some things that could be cited for David Stern perhaps, but it's just, um, it's this, it's this like trap that it's easy to fall into. If there's a high profile event that, that where there's a lot of um, overt racism involved and uh, the leader of whatever entity handles that well, then it's like, well, that's just then problem solved uh, rather than thinking about like this more nuanced systemic racism that exists on a day-to-day basis and how it kind of just like flows through the foundation of the league itself. Um, so I, I have often fallen into that trap, um, of celebrating the NBA for being extra progressive and having to remind myself like, well, this is, this is one event. And also people knew that Donald Sterling was really, uh, a terrible actor before this ha- before these recordings came out, before these statements were made, it just, there was, there was no call for it because, um, it it wasn't the media and the players weren't asking for it or explicitly like in a, in a big event type way. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if, if there were a picture that existed of all the owners of the NBA together at one of their meetings, I mean, you, you could see that there's a, a bit of a racial divide between the labor and the owners, right? There's a, so we don't want to we don't want to get over celebratory of all the owners' actions, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit as we go forward with thinking about the current day situation. But yeah, I just read um, 
uh, Etan Thomas's uh, We Matter book. That's just a collection of interviews he did with several different players and, and people in the media about, about how athletes can uh, and should voice their opinions and have been and all of that. And um, he, he was just sort of speaking to some of that, uh, those uh, issues of um, just let's like backtrack a little bit and see how this trajectory has played out over time rather than focusing on the one event in recent history where things have, have sort of gone the right way. Yeah. Um, so at the end of your, I, we have to get into current, I mean, we're already talking about current stuff, but we have to, we have to segue at some point, but I just wanted to, to read the sort of last part of your, your essay where you say, moving forward, we call for scholars to focus more on possible shifts within and the collisions between popular and critical paradigms of sport and race. For example, the notion of sport as a platform is rhetorically salient, yet ambiguous and up for contestation. What does it mean for players, management, and leagues to use sport as a platform regarding race? Who and what is the platform for? And what does this type of framing indicate about the relationship between sport and race? These questions take on more importance given that NBA players and athletes in general are increasingly lending their voices and actions in solidarity with social movements and everyday people striving for transformative racial justice. Yes. You want to take that, Alex? Alex that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And this is so, even since we've been doing this paper, and as I think athlete activism has become more prominent and also even marketed and celebrated uh, in leagues, right? So you'd see a lot of owners be like, we want our athletes to be, I mean, Silver said this, right? He talks about is that the players being uh, citizens. <laughs> um, and so, and you see a lot of, and this happened in the essays too, right? Uh, Collins, especially tapped into this. Lynn, they all do it where they see the sport as a platform for social good, right? And then, so then that to me is where, that's the thing for all of us, that's where a lot of uh, interesting things are happening. So what does that actually look like? Is it truly, is it a platform to advertise? Is it a platform to actually interrogate the sport? And so often I think sometimes you see, I, I see where sport as a platform is used as sport as a way to amplify other struggles and then kind of make, and then that kind of removes sports from its own, from its own uh, power, its own social power in terms of reproducing uh, racial injustice or that, or that it's infused, right. With, with systemic racism, and we could go into other um, forms of hierarchy and oppression. And so I think even you see a lot, right? Um, like for instance, like the NBA with the Jersey thing, right? Like they're going to put, they're using sport as a platform to put all these messages or, and that could be different things, right? A message of equality versus the name of, of a, a person who lost their life to police violence. So I think for sure that's really up for, as now it's sport is, it's okay for sports to be political, right? There's actually, I think a shift along those lines where it's now it's okay to talk about race. But now it's now it's really time to dig in as, okay, how are we talking about race? How are racial are racial justice movements seen as outside of the sport? Right? Do those do those movements actually come into the sport itself? Right. And that's kind of it's back to this larger question. Do we understand as a culture of sports being or the NBA as being separate from society, right? Or as intricately a part of um, a, tied to it, right? A part of it. So I think often 
the NBA and fans, we like to see it as the escape, right? It's, 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 it's a remove thing. It's our reward. It's a thing. It's a, it's the leader. It's the model, which often still constantly separates it from kind of issues we've been talking about in this paper. That was my attempt. At least. Yeah. I, and I think that the, the, the platform, who is the platform for is such an important point because, you know, is, is Nike's deal with Colin Kaepernick? I mean, just to, to step away from basketball for a second, any, do they have any different interests than their deal with Michael Jordan? I mean, it's, it's for, they, they're attempting to sell shoes and, and they might be thinking they can capitalize on, on certain ideas, but like it's, it, there's a bottom line to both of those. And so it's like, who, who gets to enjoy, um, this, the, the platform and, and who, who is the, um, yeah, who's it for? I think that's a really, because I, I love to say that like through basketball, we can blah, 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 but it's like, who gets to, and, and how do we get there and, and who does it benefit? I want to emphasize, I think all, I mean, everyone's figuring this out. Like to me, this is because it's so new. The players themselves, I think, because there's, there's these rhetorical moves to do, right? You ref, like Jason Collins, he referenced, you know, uh, the 1968 Olympics. He referenced all this legacy of athletes doing this, right? And so that's kind of the platform rhetoric. It's the platform to show solidarity. Um, but then as we add, right, as the, we add the capitalist, <laughs> right, the business uh, marketing overlay, it gets, a, it gets trickier. Um, <clears throat> and I think even as you're watching the leagues come back, right, so the WNBA, there's all these different forms of it happening, MLB, whether it's the knee, or I think I've been watching very closely MLS or even European soccer. Like there's now a ritualized uh, taking a knee of silence, right, in Europe, in Europe which they've done for months. So like, what does that mean? Like, so we can, and that's the debates about, so that's a very important symbolic gesture, like I would argue, but then we have to think, all right, is that kind of the new normal? Now where sports will make a lot of, teams will make symbolic gestures, there'll be hashtags. And, and I'm not even saying this to be negative, but I think that's just the, that is the shift, right? And then, and does that shift then translate to, hey, should we have Donald Sterling as owners or should we change the ownership structure of sports or, you know, labor protections, and then we can go to all these other possibilities. And this, this also relates to an article that Stefan wrote without us for some reason. He left us and co-authored with someone else for a little bit. Um, but this question about, <laughs> the question about what counts as political and that becoming the debate. And we can see this a lot recently with the WNBA, right? Because you have the Senator, uh, what is, what's her name? Um, Kelly Loeffler. Uh, yeah, right. So she's kind of entering the space and saying, oh, the, the, you know, this, the Black Lives Matter movement is political and we don't want politics and sport. Why don't they just put the flag on their jersey? That's not politics. And so there's a very obvious critique there of saying, well, if you put the flag on a jersey, that's politics. And also, <laughs> look at you. You're literally a politician and you're entering the space. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to say it's not political. Um, but this, this is a classic story, right? politicians can use sport because it's seen as apolitical. That's why it's a space that they can get good connections from and they can enter it and get all the positive feelings that people have about sport. But I also think there's a danger, and I'm curious if Alex and Stefan disagree with me here. Um, I, I get frustrated when the players push back and say, no, Black Lives Matter is not political. We're doing this because it's just human rights, right? We're just speaking of something higher. We're better than the larger culture. I want athletes to say, no, 
this is political, but we're always political, right? Everything is political. So don't act like the national anthem isn't political. Don't act like the flag isn't political. And don't act like Black, Black Lives Matter isn't political either. Rather, it's a politics that we believe in and we're using and we're acknowledging that we're not separate from culture. So if Black Lives Matter is a political movement outside of sport, it's also a political movement in sport. Um, so I, I, my one critique of players, although I hesitate to do this because players are working through this, players are figuring it out and not, and also not play every player is taking the same approach. I think embrace the political. I don't have much to add to that. I think both Alex and Kyle articulated those, their points really well. Um, just, just to like, and I, so I agree that there has been this discursive shift within the sporting landscape over the past, let's say five, 10 years. Um, but the question is, what does that shift represent? Is it actually, um, is it simply symbolic or is it actually substantive? Because we can think about institutional in institutions and the discursive shifts they've made previously. Like, let's say academia's embrace of diversity and multiculturalism. Like, that's happened. Like, those discursive shifts have happened within institutions historically. Um, the question is whether or not they actually lead to substantive change, and usually they don't because they're still. Um, because in many ways, the 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 the, the change the, the changes are symbolic and um, exist at the discursive level, but actually aren't implemented at any kind of reason, um, substantive structural level. So the question that we're I think we're we're still wrestling with is whether or not this discursive shift represents something larger. And going to Kyle's point, I think and we can, we can say that it, it 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 does if and when players start acknowledging. And maybe some have, but like um, overwhelmingly start acknowledging that discussing things like race and power and culture and identity within um, sporting spaces is inherently political. Like BLM is inherently political, not in the typical like political party sense or electoral politics sense. But I mean, black bodies, people of color have always been politicized within an American context. And um, it's not possible to talk about these populations and these movements without also discussing the political structures um, responsible for creating them in the first place. So like they are inherently political um, and th they should be acknowledged as such. I think that will be, for me at least, that will signal that that substantive shift um, within not only discourse, but society, uh, sporting spaces at large. And that's, I'd say, one of the things that's giving me the most hope in looking at current events is players and even the, the sports teams focusing on voting, right? Because there's actually using a sports space and saying, we are going to turn this into a political space in the most literal and obvious way possible because people are going to be able to vote here. Or players, um, I, I think you pointed out in the document where you're listing questions, more than a vote paying for the court fines or fees for ex-felons in Florida who have been disenfranchised over and over. And now we have a new way of disenfranchising uh, people from being able to vote, right? So players are saying, players are saying we are going to engage beyond the symbolic act. And that's, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think as we watch and we observe, um, as we observe kind of what's happening over these next handful of months and going forward, I wonder um, how much of is it players trying to work through in their institutions, right? Versus, so with the WNBA example, like I've seen a lot of players, right, calling it out, calling her out, right, saying get her out, get uh, Kelly Luckler, Luckler out of the league, 
right? So I think that's an interesting kind of move, right? Which is actually something that's not existed in the past, right? We actually have players potentially collectively trying to pressure a change. Um, and then I think too, as you've seen, this with the NBA is when initially when the NBA was talking about the bubble and right players were, you know, all these leaked leaked reports about should we play or not? What are the ethical considerations? Are we distracting? All these types of conversations. Um, I find that even if it doesn't necessarily lead to an institutional change, I think there's a lot of possibility here in terms of beyond the players of who's, who's consuming, right? So I, I wonder like a long-term effect uh, to give some of, of these kind of symbolic gestures or to constantly see recognition, right? And I think it's hard to say what that will do, <laughs> right? It's really hard to say that all these little discursive things, these, these images shape the public consciousness, but I think that's also kind of where I see some potential in this is like, you can't avoid it, right? So even if no one's saying it's, it's apolitical, it does, and, and saying Black Lives Matter is not a political statement, the fact that you do have it over and over again on ESPN broadcast, right? I think that that part is something to see. That that's a just a dramatic uh, change as well. Yes, and this distinction between political and politicized, like in whose hands is is this movement being discussed or talked about or interacted with? I think that then that can change how that how that movement lives. Yeah, because I think. I think that also relates to a conversation that we've probably all had with many people about the danger of something like, like Black Lives Matter becoming almost commodified and losing its power when you have every corporation just putting out an Instagram post or tweet, um, you know, like whatever local hardware store or whatever a giant corporation saying Black Lives Matter. Well, you know, I, it's hard to say that's I wouldn't say it's bad, but also what does that, what does that even mean? Right. And is there something, something lost there? So I agree with Alex completely. The, the symbolic nature of it matters. It's important for people to see that over and over, but I'm afraid of, uh, you know, corporations just being, this being almost the new multicultural or we support diversity and, that, and that that's dangerous. And that's where I want to come back to like, what are the players doing? Um, so we see just like this weekend, right? So what the WNBA did what the players did i thought i was in so besides brianna taylor they basically tied themselves directly to the say her name campaign and it was not relying and they used their own voices before the game made a statement right a very powerful statement accurate statement um and then when it was like media interviews with holly Rowe, they every time they all said we're focusing on supporting brianna taylor um we're tied to we're tied to her right we're tied to her community and interestingly they got holly Rowe to like inter to interview brianna taylor brianna taylor's mom like that was a to me like so the, in terms of like a collective shift even like the presentation and that's a pushback versus to me you know seeing what the nba is doing right now where it's like we're going to approve some messages to go on the back of your shirt right that's those are really different ways i think of so to me, the NBA is actually instigating. The players are instigating um, and in a collective way that's a little different and I think kind of pushes back against the risks of the commodification, which I think is for sure there. But I think that's just as we see going forward is how do the players themselves operate while the institutions of their leagues try to do it, use it for branding purposes. 
Right. And even with that list, I mean, that list like was so that the NBA put out with the approved messages that players could have on the back of their jerseys. I mean, when you, when you read that list out loud, all of those phrases lose some power. It becomes like a shopping list of items. Uh, and it's really disturbing. And I, like I said, I mean, I said in our shared doc that I felt icky because I thought this was a really important thing to talk about but as soon, on my podcast, but then as soon as I attempted to um, read it out loud, it just, it made me uncomfortable. I felt like I was, every different phrase was taking power away from the next and taking meaning away from the next. And just, it became this kind of, uh, just, it, it lost its its meaning. And so um, I, I think that that is how, how will we see those when, you know, the players are going to have different, some of the players are going to have different phrases on their backs. How can that lead to what we saw in the WNBA with Holly Rowe and uh, Brianna Taylor's mother and, and things like that? What What is next after the symbolic gesture? Which I think is what everyone is asking themselves. I mean, a lot of people who care right now are asking themselves about in a lot of ways, not just around basketball, but we're about to watch the, the NBA. Um, I think that their opening, I mean, the NBA's opening day will be a bigger deal than the MLB's opening day just because the NBA is the one that shut it down. And they're the ones that have put, uh, I think it was, you know, less than a month ago, even that it felt like MLB might not even start again this year or not that, not that more, but you know, the NBA has been working towards this for a while. So I think that they have that all eyes will be on them in a way that that's not going to exist with the other sports as much. Yeah. And I think, I guess, I guess two responses that the, I do building off what we've been saying, we are seeing players pointing up the chain of command and up towards the top of the institution. And that matters too. So players have been more outspoken, I think than ever before of saying, well, who are, who are the owners of these leagues and what are they committing to this? Right? So not only are they allowing us to negotiate for what's being on the back of a Jersey, but what are they going to do with the stadium or what are they going to demonstrate? What are they going to do to demonstrate that this isn't simply symbolic? And I don't know if we've had the answers yet. I don't think we have a lot of the cases, but at least it's, pushing that way. And that's important in every institution. Um, going back to what Stefan's saying, right? So you're going to hire a faculty member and you're going to promote diversity, but what are you actually doing if we move up the institutional chain of command? Um, and then the other thing, I think the NBA has been the most controlled and impressive experiment to how we move forward with sport during this time. And I think that's in part because of the power that players have. So if the NBA fails at this, then it's the strongest sign that we can't have sport during this time. Because I, I don't think you can be safer than the NBA is right now. And the other leagues, I expect to fail because they've, they haven't been <laughs> that impressive, right? And I don't think the other sports should be moving forward in the way they are. Um, but the NBA, really, it's like, if it, if it doesn't happen with them, it's not going to happen. Um, I think one thing I wanted to add about just seeing right? Black Lives Matter t-shirts, players uh, wearing cleats, you know, all, all, all of the symbolic presentations. I think about the women's soccer league in America that just wrapped up NWSL, right? A mostly white sport, middle, upper middle class sport, audience, a different political, I mean, generally a more liberal audience, right? Um, right, pride, right, support of LGBTQ issues, it's just even just telling to see like basically a mostly white space, right? Where 
uh, wear Black Lives Matter shirts to acknowledge. We're having teams, uh, the team from Seattle did like a privilege walk and like broadcasted on right their uh, their Twitter handle. Like, so I think even to me, it's we're we're locked down to NBA right now. But to think even how in a sport that's not sports that have, do not have black audiences, right? Or people who are more removed <laughs> from these issues. What are the implications of these type of moments and do they sustain, right? Like, is this gonna happen? Like by the time they start again, like, is, are we gonna see this kind of stuff? I don't know, but right, that, that's even like the long-term kind of implications I think about, because it's easy to focus on the NBA because race is so visible, right? But I think even if we think about the sports world more broadly and this movement, right? Do they have to care about, right? These issues really, if they, they see themselves as separate. I just want to add that too, because so the league that actually happened, the NWSL actually finished and they didn't have any cases while they did their bubble. And, and really quickly, Abigail, about a point made earlier about feeling icky about the approved, approved list. I think you have every right to be, to feel that way or to feel disturbed or skeptical um, because it's at that point, it's just, it's like no longer organic, right? So it's like, it's, it isn't happening because of the will of the players um, or the actions of the players. Uh, it's, it's almost like, I mean, it is, it's, it's technically a mandate or it's, it's a list of, it's a, it's a, it's a mandate of approved, approved words that, that players and uh, teams can use. And so it's, it's, it, it feels, it feels at that point commodified and corporatized and which is almost against all of the grassroots, the grassroots elements and foundation of movements like Black Lives Matter in the first place. So like, I think you have every right to be to be disturbed and skeptical about about uh, actions like those. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I think it just um, is. It still it, would that still be considered like a protest necessarily because it's sort of it's. Um, I mean, it's it's approved, um, and so you know, what Colin Kaepernick did originally, what Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf did, um, and uh, lots of WNBA players like when sort of going against what was expected of them rather than falling in line with what is approved by the institution that they are existing in. It's, uh, yeah, it just, it doesn't have that same quality, like you're saying, this organic sort of from, from, the, from the heart uh, impact. Yeah, it shows it shows the challenge of maybe not the challenge, it shows the power of a space that labels itself as progressive and supportive, right? It under it undercuts a lot of the the power of the statement, the power of this kind of revolutionary act or the power of a feeling organic, which is in other sports leagues where it seems like they're pushing against where the athlete is pushing against the management. It seems risky, it seems surprising, it seems shocking, but this is a calculated statement and I suppose we could try to celebrate and say, look, the owners actually approved and are, 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 are fine with these messages, but there's something off about it. Right. And this podcast um, came from frustration with Adam Silver because he wanted all the players. I mean, he the, the rule that stands in the NBA that requires everyone to stand for the national anthem, he reminded everyone that that was something they had to adhere to at the beginning of the 2017-2018 season. Uh, right after Colin Kaepernick had been at the forefront of all this news. So it just feels like um, it, it just, 
it's not as though I, I, it's not that I would have wanted him to, I mean, I think the same thing would have happened if he had um, sent out a list at that point of approved movements that the players could do with their bodies during the national anthem that were uh, allowed by the, by him, by the owners, all of that, or yeah. So it's just, it's how do we go about doing this in a way that doesn't feel like um, so systemized and safe for, for the people that still have power. I should know this, but what is the current standing of the NBA on the national anthem? Has there been any shift in that policy or has there been any discussion of whether they're going to enforce it as, a, as the official season starts again? Well, there's the article that Alex is featured in that touches on um, those issues, I think. Alex, yes? I don't know if they've actually made an official change. I don't think they have. I don't think there is any of that. Um, yeah, I think in the article, that's why it's going to be curious. Like, what are players going to do? And this is because the NBA has a – this is like the dynamics between the NBA has kind of co- – under silver, there's a more emphasis on collaboration. The players are partners, which I think is a very smart business <laughs> uh, decision and has, and has reaped a lot of benefits. But I think in terms of what that plays out politically, it's interesting. I think it offers some possibilities to hold the institution more accountable, right? Like maybe the owners – like actually having them give money or actually contribute to some initiatives. But in terms of – protest i don't know if like a player is going to take a knee and put their fist up you know what you've actually which i've seen in other sports right and so it's actually I'm curious to see what happens with the nba whether that, that i don't i wouldn't imagine they'd be interested in punishing given the political context but um i'm actually curious what nba players are gonna do or if they even view that as a space as a worthwhile act for them um yeah and i know the nba at one point was discussing playing the black national anthem before the games as well and i don't know if that was just put out there and i know some players were critical of it i'm guessing they're still not planning that um but you could see that as an example of an institution trying to get ahead of it and saying yeah we're partners we're with you look how supportive we are but i'm i don't i don't know where that idea even came from right but yeah, I think I saw that for the NFL too. You gotta be careful with the social media stories though. But yeah, I saw that one out there. Um yeah, I think and that's where so whether it's like the pre-game, right? Um, kind of all institutionally sanctioned or approved messages. And that's what I'm just curious, particularly NBA, where they go like in like in four or five months, or if we ever get past COVID, right? And there's a sense of normal quote unquote normalcy. But, um, you know, will there still be that type of pressure or will be, we'll kind of go back to the kind of NBA cares model, right? Or the NBA players union kind of do their thing. It's not really amplified. It's amplified as like, look at these good citizens to market, right? <laughs> but um, not so much, you know, hey, like this is a space we're going to antagonize. We're going to instigate. You're all, I also searched on my phone. You're right. It was NFL, was not the NBA. NBA. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes sense because it seemed like kind of a tone-deaf idea. Yeah. And I was surprised <laughs> NBA was doing it. Right. Um, I'd be curious to to see how the like that rule that rule is 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 written, the rule about um standing for the national anthem. Because I feel like and and I'm also curious to see how players again negotiate with this, because there have been other rules that players kind of like play with. Um, or like it's like like the like the business casual rule. Like 
we see, um, and I've seen an, we've seen an increase in players wearing like streetwear during um, during interviews, during um, like when they're sitting on the on, on the on the bench, for example, if they're injured. And I don't think the the league has changed any of their their the rules over 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 attire when they're not dre- when they're not dressed in uniform. So um, or in their jerseys. So like I'm I'm wondering like like to what degree again a lot of these a lot of these rules are like strictly enforced. And also on on the on the flip side, like how the players themselves um, they negotiate and play with these rules too. It's interesting because I think that Mahmoud Abdurraouf was suspended, but he and and it was publicly said that he was fined. But he, I've also heard an interview with him where he says he never, no money was ever taken out of his paycheck for for what happened. So I think. Um, there could be a stance and, you know, that was David Stern. So I I think that sometimes there is this stance like of sort of appearing to be uh, a certain way and publicly stating certain things and, and not, you know, even Colin Kaepernick, I think it wasn't, it was the attention was on him once the media started asking questions, but no one was necessarily pushing back on him as far as I know before that. So it's like when the media catches hold of something is when there, there needs to be something needs to be fixed or taken care of in some way. I wonder too, particularly with the NBA, we've talked about this in our text, endless text message thread about coaches as well. So I think with the NBA in particular, because of the culture of the sports and kind of who the, who the people are, the labor force, and the kind of and the power, influence, and respect players actually do get. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, like, for instance, I know, I know there is a coaches like group or initiative that's been formed, and they're like having conversations. You got like Stan Van Gundy all over, <laughs> you know, social <laughs> media, like calling out, like expressing pretty like left politics. I would say he's, uh, he's Brockport alumni. I just yeah, want to okay. point that out. So. Brockport's <laughs> finest. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. I think with all the coaches and the players, I'm curious to see, yes, there's like what they're going to do in the games. Will they, will the NBA players follow the WNBA's lead and like dictate interviews or will they kind of just go along with the ritual of talking about the game? Right. Um, will they actually kind of, de-emphasize the importance of sports. That is the kind of new thing. We're talking about sport as a platform. I'm curious to see how athletes, you talk about how that what they do doesn't actually matter. It's like they often, we've seen this rhetoric, and this happened in the WA this weekend. It was, you know, this is not the most important thing going on. And then they redirect to broader social issues, which I personally think that's fine and a legitimate thing to do, but I think it does tell us about how they view sports. Right. So I think it's like we, we have to get the owner, the racist owners, we probably have to deal with that. But really, the problems are still the outside and we have to use the resources here to call attention to it, which, again, I think is a fair thing. But it's interesting that that is the rhetorical kind of move. And I think like LeBron even might I think LeBron has kind of spoken to this as well. Right. You know, we're going to use. You know, basketball is this one thing, but really it's about everything outside of basketball. So I think we're going to kind of see a little bit more of that just with the context of we're going to self-solve social problems. Yeah, which which in a sense is saying without 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 actually saying the words, basketball is great. Basketball is still that meritocratic space that's superior to everywhere else. That's why we're focusing elsewhere. I mean, imagine the power if every player decided post-game 
they were going to point to the racist actions of a business owned by one of the NBA owners, right? Like that, that would be a, a real moment. Um, not that these, again, not that these other moments don't matter. They're powerful, powerful and important, but focusing in on the institution itself. Um, but, I, and I, thinking about how the NBA is different than other spaces, you were bringing up the coaches. It's hard to imagine all of the NFL coaches having a, a web chat to talk about what political actions and how they're going to take and how they're going to engage in some sort of social justice movement, right? But the NBA, you have all the coaches signing on. You have a coach like Lloyd Pierce taking the lead in this conversation. Um, and there, it seems like a legitimate uh, belief that they should be doing this, right? And they, and they have power that can be used. What kind of timeline is this? What kind of world do we live in where Mark Cuban is like, <laughs> the lead social justice warrior of, the, of MPK. Just like it's a, such a bizarre turn of events in recent in recent months. Yeah, I'm still kind of grappling with it. And I think also, I mean, it, it's so. And Lloyd Pierce kind of like taking the lead on this. It's important to me that like like that has been building up. I mean, with Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr and Sam Van Gundy and other coaches who aren't black. Also, like speaking out and like sort of setting the tone for, for so that I, I feel like there is that dynamic. And you know, of course, this can go back to your essay with like who is speaking out on these issues and what are they saying when they do and how are they addressing them and is it is it the the black players that are having to 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 be the ones that that identify racism when it comes up in explicit ways. And I think that it's really important to have to have the white white coaches also being very explicit in their in their. Uh, opinions about about how racism exists there yeah i think one the nba which i'll give it in terms of possible positive possibilities i do think because the nba has this level of exchange it has a level of cosmopolitanism it has blackness as central and we're actually player and where the labor is more visible right and in a way less kind of What's the word? The labor is less commodified to a certain degree um, than other sports. Um, that the exchange has led to more, I would say, anti-racist articulations, right? So it's not just exchange, it's happy. We get to all learn from each other. Sports are colorblind. I actually think the NBA, even despite maybe marketing, right? And kind of what, what, what is projected that through, and the coaches are a good example, that you actually have coaches <laughs> right, who are articulating anti-racist ideas, working on towards, and that is a, and I don't think that is, that's a much harder thing to accomplish, I think, in other sports. Um, and that's, and again, because I could, you could also see, which I think where we're getting at in terms of the NBA marketing and, you know, approved slogans, that's kind of the, the other end of it, right, where um, you have basically race interacts, race happens, and then you lead to a kind of diversity, diversity language versus everyone interacts and you actually get to an anti-racist type of articulation. So yeah. You can see also, it's an interesting development where the NBA is being recognized as this center of power to talk about, uh, where the athletes, black athletes have the power to talk about race. You're seeing that recognized by other sports as well, right? So and and when something happens, like when Bubba Wallace is critiqued by Donald Trump, you have LeBron James make a statement and reach out and Bubba Wallace is assigned to uh, the Beats headphones. Um, when there is an NFL player 
when there's some controversy around race, you can see the NBA player being the media will look to say, what does the NBA player think? When I was looking up whether I was wrong about the NBA and the Black National Anthem, first thing I saw was Steph Curry speaks out against the NFL plan, right? So it's not that the NFL player speaks out about the plan. You go to the NBA player and say, what do, what do you, well, what do you think about what that other institution, what that other league is doing? Which is pretty strange. I mean, it, it, you wouldn't think that if something happens in NASCAR or football or hockey or baseball, why do you go to LeBron James, right? Why do you go to the, the basketball player to ask this question? But that's that's where we are. And I think there was, I mean, for me watching the first uh, baseball game of the season between the Nationals and the Yankees, there was a lot of sort of visual power, I think, in seeing all the players and the coaches take a knee before the game. Uh, but at the same time, it's like we might not see Greg Popovich taking a knee, but we're going to hear him articulate how white supremacy functions within the NBA, outside the NBA, this like sort of massive institutional issue that we're up against. It's like that that trumps the, the taking a knee in, in this in this particular comparison that that I think is 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 more powerful just to have that voice there consistently. Yeah, I told I told Kyle and Steph in our thread that the MLB with their, you know, it matters, you know, that the Boston Red Sox put Black Lives Matter sign. It matters that they put it on the the rope. Stephan, you told you tweeted out they put it on the mound, I think, or you texted us that the, that the yeah. Nationals had on the mound. But for baseball, it very much reeks of um, given the decline of African-American population, given that Lat black Latino players really have no voice, less labor power, right? It reeks of like, you put the Black Lives Matter sign in your neighborhood that's mostly 95% white and has perpetuated racial segregation. Like that's what MLB feels right. like. Right, so like if, if we're skeptical of the NBA and their commodification of anti-racist uh, language or discourse and of the Black Lives Matter movement, then we're even more skeptical of the MLB for sure. Given that, like, given Alex's point about um, the decrease, decline of um, black players within the league, and and of course like, the general politics of the league itself. Yes. Like, um, it, it's really it's really funny because I'm, I'm a huge Dodgers fan as well, and I've been mentioning to, to Kyle and Alex how a lot of the Dodgers players have been coming out and. Um, and supporting the Black Lives Matter movement and talking about systemic racism and like the racialized incarceration and so on and so forth. And they put out a video a few days ago um, articulating these points and every single person in that video was white. <laughs> so it, it was just, um, I mean, yes, they have a few black players, but I think that's kind of besides the point. Um, it's, 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 it, 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 it feels like, it feels, um, it feels, it, it feels superficial because so much, even even as they're saying these things, uh, there's there and and looking externally to societal issues, there's very little reflection of the inequities inherent within that MLB itself. And this is where I think many of the critics and skeptics uh, can point out that uh, there is a danger to many of these leagues and institutions themselves kind of co-opting this language. Because what happens when this? Like on the one hand, yes, it's it's good to have these discourses become. Uh, normalized, um, become part of the uh, cultural norms. But then the other question is what happens when these languages become part of the cultural norms and we see corporations and these large institutions also voicing the same points without really following through in any meaningful way. And, and every part of their message in that video you sent was 
oriented outwards away from sport, right. which makes sense. It's good to focus on that. But going back to Alex's point, when are we going, when are they going to look inwards and say, here's, here's what we can actually change. Here's how I'm complicit. And I think for the three of us, even when we're writing this piece, we all view and understand sports as intimately tied and as a part of society, despite the fact that in our popular culture, sports is constantly reproduced as separate or even like a weird microcosm, which still indicates indicates as separate, right? Whereas I think what we're trying to get at here is that as we kind of return to think about the own practices or to even think about, and you know, this players aren't getting there yet, but thinking about like, okay, yes, who are the owners, but even think um, who has access to the teams, right? Who's in the media, right? How are the owners even this wealthy, <laughs> right? I think even that's that Blake Griffin mentioned, Everyone knew how Sterling and Abigail, you mentioned, everyone knew how Sterling got his money. He got it off of racially expo- exploiting black people. Like that was his central <laughs> form of doing this and, and people of color in LA. So like, even like that to me is, I mean, that's, you know, my politics aside, like that is like the, that's like the ideal <laughs> as where we can actually tie them together, right? To not always just say, look at society, we're baseball players, we're basketball players, we're helping society, but to always constantly, well, not just removing one removing sports. Right. And I, I, I mean, just to, to go back to baseball for a second, like um, what does kneeling before the anthem mean exactly? Um, I mean, as far as there, there's no, I mean, I think it's like kneeling without risk um, and it doesn't, it, it is totally sidestepping the hot button issue of, of kneeling during the anthem and it is then ignoring what it means also to kneel during the anthem. So some players are kneeling during the anthem, more players than before are kneeling during the anthem and during MLB games, but, but not this whole, this like ritual of everyone kneeling is, is a, is a tradition that is separate from what Colin Kaepernick began uh, and does not have the same meaning. Uh, I don't think at all. Um, so it's deflecting in, in my, uh, from my perspective. Uh, which still is not getting at this issue that that needs to have light shed on it. Right, repeatedly lost his lost his livelihood because because of his actions. There is no such risk applied to the individuals in any league today, really, who who are also performing uh, who are also kneeling during the anthem. And beyond that, it's I think it, to some degree it should be celebrated. I think the fact that there is. It's, it's 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 spurring discussion about what racism is and the ways in which maybe even sport is implicated within these broader processes. Like that's an important discussion to be had. But I think the the, the main problem lies when this when this is seen as a kind of culmination of prior action. Like this is this is all that they can do. And at that point it just serves as something symbolic as a gesture and doesn't actually then lead um doesn't actually lay the groundwork for, let's say, the, the work that needs to be done following those symbolic gestures. Right. I We have not that much time left, and I wanted to squeeze in a few more questions that I think are um, important. And just as a side note, um, back to what we were talking about before, so I had written to Adam Silver about the rule that requires players to stand for the national anthem, and he did not write back to me, but Bill from fan, uh, NBA Fan Relations wrote back to me and just said that it's been in place for 30 years and that over 30 years and that is that is essentially why it 
exists, which um, I'm still forming my response to Bill, (laughs) but just this idea that like, if everything was in place because it had been in place for 30 years before that, then, then where would we be right now uh, as a, as individuals, as a country, whatever it is. So I just think that like, for me, that was a little bit of a cop out. If you, if we're going to address this issue, let's address it for the, the, like the merits of that particular policy rather than thinking about who put it in place and why, because that's not, that's not relevant in this moment. Will you change your podcast name to Dear Bill from Player Relations? Because I, I kind of like the ring of that better. It's um, it's been discussed before on the podcast. When I've like mentioned this before, it, it's yeah. it's come up that um, that I really should just be writing to Bill because he'll write back, and Adam Silver <laughs> won't write back uh, yet. You know, yeah. but he's more than welcome on the pod anytime for the most part. <laughs> it's a bad look when you're using the same kind of logic and language as the Washington football team, Washington football team. Like rationalizing your, yes. your behavior, your, your 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 name, your actions based off of legacy and history when it's clearly problematic, right? So, yes, yeah, not a good. It's not a good company. And actually, right. And actually, your essay made me think of um, so that when you're describing the Donald Sterling incident uh, and how one of the things Adam Silver responded to it with was by saying uh, racism has no place here. Uh, and of course, that is a line that we hear a lot from whenever something, whenever there's like sort of an overt um, instance of racism. I'm thinking of um, Charlottesville and what happened there and, and and other instances like that. A lot of politicians also say, like, this doesn't belong here. Racism has no place here, which also then is a deflection to the fact that like racism does exist here. And sometimes it is more obvious and sometimes it is more more hidden. But it's just it's a way to just be like, yep, that's one person, that's one day, this is not a larger issue. Um, And so I think that if we don't have room for racism, then we also might not have room for anti-racism actions, which I think is the case, you know, what what we probably saw with Colin Kaepernick, that if we're not acknowledging that racism is here, then how can we have anti-racism side by side with it? Um, Or how can we fight against it? So just how does any of that make any of you want to say anything? (laughs) I'll say that it does ring complete. Every college at some point has some sort of racist graffiti that someone scrawls on a wall in one of the dorms somewhere outside. And that is always, you know, the president always puts out that exact statement, right? X college, racism doesn't belong here. So I, I, I just wanted to think about how that transcends institutions. And I also want to put pressure on Alex because he wrote on the sheet that this is a great question that he wants to talk about. <laughs> um, no pressure. No, no, there's no pressure. Um, well, so yeah, I think there's, so with, we said in our paper, we see this actually happen, right? So Corver actually kind of questions the logic, right? So after the fan abuse, racially abused Westbrook, the owner, like Gail Miller, her name right says yeah, right. you know we're not a racist community and Corver's like in his essays like well maybe we are <laughs> right so, and that was and we latched on to that as like whoa like that is something you do not hear from white athletes really ever um and we don't really hear it um and as you said in the broader discourse right no one says yes we are a racist institution this reflects our histories right and I think that is a huge kind of discursive and right discursive and just knowledge-based step that you could see being advocated for. And I think even with Kaepernick and NFL, because it was about um, 
it was about police brutality, right? It was still outside of the sports world. So especially with the NBA, the sports world actually had people say, no, the NBA reproduces racism. And that, I think was what we get this either or dynamic, right? So it's either we don't tolerate it, racism doesn't exist here. And these are one-offs, which is sociologists have widely said, that's not how you understand racism. That's not what racism is. It's a structural institutional phenomenon that I think it's lived out the day to day. And so to me, um, the space for anti-racism is actually, sports cannot have really any anti-racist rhetoric or logic until it, there's constant acknowledgement of it being a racist institution. That doesn't mean they can't, they don't, they don't happen. So that's where we get to the racial terrain part. Like I think even having, be able to hold those ideas that yes, the NBA is an institution that reproduces racism, racial disparities, racialized logics. And at the same time, people are, you can advocate for anti and articulate anti-racism in this space. Like that's saying like those two uh, dynamics are very much rejected as main, um, existing at the same time. And that's why I think you see politicians, you know, leaders say that, right? Because they do not want to hold those two things together, right? So by, by doing that, it does eliminate the possibilities of anti-racism for sure. Um, that's why, yeah. So that's Kyle, you mentioned earlier about, right. If a player said, if the players are like, Hey, our owner donated to this billions of millions of dollars to this politician who's perpetuating racist racism in society. Like that is a huge, like that's, that's a, that's a way of not perpetuating that we are not, uh, removed from these issues. Yeah. And it, and it goes to the example you were giving before Alex about, the the nice white neighborhood that has everyone has the black lives matter sign out front that's effectively doing the same thing of saying racism doesn't belong here let's return to this colorblind happy utopia where we don't have to think about it because we've established that we're not those people right yeah. so it, it's it's and it's exactly what you're you're saying abby that when you say that there's no room for racism it does eliminate that potential yeah. because how can you talk about anti-racist actions if racism doesn't exist if you're a colorblind utopia then bringing up race actually disrupts that. So it disrupts the neighborhood if you acknowledge, well, maybe we shouldn't just put that back Black Lives Matter sign out there while we're uh, you know, thriving off this exclusionary practice that did not allow certain people to live in this neighborhood. But that's, that's more difficult. And to build off of even how much do the owners get centralized or get, get centered or be made visible, their own actions, their other ways they make their wealth, like. I mean, I don't know the exact histories of every NBA owner, right? But we know there, someone has been done the counts of like who donated to the Trump campaign, right? Like that stuff is the things that could be brought up to be like, oh no, <laughs> right? This is a way we prepare, the NBA is complicit, right? Not even just like the hiring patterns or, but even just how the NBA itself, this institution operates is very much deeply tied to, you know, larger politics. But I think that's like another level right, to where you'd actually really challenge the idea that it's not belonging here. It's like, no, it does belong here because these people fund it, right? <laughs> they, they fund the whole institution. And how many owners, we talked about players, we talked about coaches, how many owners have we seen engage in any sort of action, even, even if it's just about equality, right? It's, it's hard. We've got Mark Cuban out there, uh, Stefan's favorite NBA owner. Um, <laughs> We've got uh, the Kings owner, Vivek uh, Ranadive. He's, he was very involved after one of the police shootings or, or murders in uh, Sacramento. Um, Michael Jordan. 
Yeah, uh, Michael Jordan, um, always a political activist, <laughs> um, right? So I we, mean, we, he's he's putting his money where his yeah. mouth is right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's. I know that's my anti. Uh, sorry. I know it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's okay because I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it it's we're not seeing. I don't know the name of the owners of most of the teams in the NBA, right? Well, I don't. I don't see them talking about this. I see them letting the players. Uh, engage in putting a name on their jersey and letting the players and coaches speak, but we don't know what the owners are thinking. And if we follow the money, we'd probably be disappointed to find out what they're thinking. Right. So I, yeah, I'd, and I'd I think be, oh, I, I'd be impressed if it was like Gail Miller, the Utah Jazz owner, who was doing who was doing the same thing or saying the same things as a Mark Cuban or a Michael Jordan in this instance, but. Uh, we we're we're not seeing that. So, and and, and I say in, in this case, actions speak louder than words. And words like no, we have no room for racism. They feel hollow when um, they feel hollow when there is no active discussion about what racism actually is and who it impacts and how the NBA and its ownership and the league has been complicit. And no active recognition of the NBA's like racist uh, legacy and history. It's like all these things have to be have to be occurring at the same time and consistently. And they just can't be one-offs because when they're one-offs, you know that it's just a, it's a publicity thing. It's a it's a thing. It's damage control for whatever incident that's that's occurred, and it's 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 not sustained. Yeah, and I, I final thing I'd say that I think it's important just listening to the way that we're answering the questions you can see us oscillate back and forth between thinking about how amazing the NBA is in some ways and then being re really critical, which is what we were, that balance we were trying to get in the paper because it's always, it's always both. It's not, it's not either, it's not either or, um, which is a challenge to talk about and write about. But I also think it's really important to acknowledge. Definitely. And I, I felt that from the paper. And I think that that makes it more interesting that you're not coming at it from this sort of only an academic perspective or only sort of a research perspective, but you're thinking about it as people who care also about watching basketball. Um, and I mean, we ask so much of the players from the players uh, that we don't ask of the owners. Um, and I'm sure it's designed that way. So uh, if, if the owners were held as accountable as the players are for social issues, like we would be a lot farther along on this sort of dismantling uh, process with with uh, systemic racism. So that's, I mean, and, and because you're saying like, if we saw, I, I actually don't know how often all of the owners get together uh, in one room, uh, but if we saw a picture of them, we, we, it would be a, a deep contrast to who's, who's playing on the court. Um, and even, I mean, I brought up the, um, uh, Etan Thomas book earlier, and I got sidetracked about what I was going to say about it, but he calls the owner CEOs. He thinks that that is a much better word and it's better than governors and it's better than owners. And it's just an interesting that even like the language that we use, we, we also have to shift that in order to, to have like a healthier dynamic there. Yeah, I think. I think that's, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. I mean, this is where we get to will the power structure of sports does all this action right now ever lead to a challenging of the power structure in sports and this is incredibly hard it's incredibly <laughs> dangerous it's it's fair it's dangerous on on athletes labor it's dangerous even just to the functioning of sports in america to actually 
say, hey, the people who, who have, who profit the most, uh, who make the decisions, right? They, this is an inherent problem, right? And, that, and then whenever that happens, that's where you get, I think when you have folks actually make to those leaps, which even Thomas is kind of doing there a little bit to challenge the CEO, that's where you get even the silences can get harsher and the consequences can get harsher. And there has to be recognition that the players themselves are also capitalists. Like they're, yeah, they, yeah. they benefit from, they benefit from all, uh, many of the prior injustices the leagues have used to kind of prop themselves up. And we, we can't just ignore that part. I mean, the, like there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, like vitriol kind of directed towards like LeBron James, for example, for not calling out China because of the sponsorships that he has from, I imagine, various Chinese companies and the fans that he has in that region. And I think so it's, it's important to recognize that, yes, the, the players are laborers, but um, they're also entrepreneurs. They're also capitalists, too, and they benefit from whatever systems are already at play. Yeah, and their power is in part through their entrepreneurship moving beyond just what they do on the court. LeBron James has a lot of power because he's not just, a, he's not just making his money from being a player. Um, all, all these players have more power because they've been able to make their own deals and have their own brand that they're protecting. Yeah, I remember hearing something interesting from Charles Barkley that he's been asked to run as governor in Alabama, both from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. So just this idea of like, like LeBron James could be a politician pretty easily, I, I would think, um, if, he, if he chose to put his efforts and his money towards that. Uh, and so that, that power and that influence can translate within these spheres potentially because of, of how they, they've been able to sort of build their themselves, their brand, whatever expands beyond that. I mean, Charles Barkley as governor, like we can debate that later on, but just this, like, this idea that like it, he's been approached from both parties, like that's, that's a little nuts to me. Yeah, and, and I would argue that LeBron James has more power as LeBron James rather than Governor LeBron James or Senator LeBron James. I think he would actually have less power within that setting. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that'll probably take us in another direction too. But Yeah, but maybe, yeah, like King LeBron James is where he'd have, you know, if, yeah. if we just had a different literal system of governing in the whole country. Yeah, literal king. That's where, that's where we're headed. I'm, I wouldn't, I mean, maybe I prefer it to what we have right now. I don't know. I would. I vote for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we wouldn't <laughs> vote, but we, yeah. We oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so we'll see. But um, I think really quickly, we just need to, if there's any other thing you'd like to say about the beginning, the NBA coming back, if there's a prediction, if there's a thought about what you hope we might see on, I remember in 2017, um, after, um, when the season was starting and Adam Silver had reminded players of that rule in the NBA and the Warriors had just not visited the White House for the first time. Yes. Oh, no. Yes. Um, and I just remember hoping that on opening night, like when I turn on the TV, like everyone would be kneeling. And, and since then, I've come to terms with also that, you know, again, when I'm talking about with the expectations being greater, like I'm me kind of like projecting onto the players what I should be doing in my own life as well and, and, and desiring more from them than maybe I give or, or the owners give. Um, but what, what are some things that maybe you hope to see um, or who you hope to win? <laughs> Any of it, fandom, academics. Well, who wants to go first in this one? Final word. Yeah. Uh, I'll try. So I, 
I hope one that no one gets sick because <laughs> I still, I mean, I personally, I do not think this tournament, I don't think any of these sports in America should be happening on an mm-hmm. ethical uh, I don't care if the bubble can work and like they can pull it off, but it's just really not great. <laughs> it kind of indicates like the desperation to secure these finances, right? Sure, yeah. Expensive public health and just even who should get access to these resources. The testing yeah, the is testing a big is controversy. Um, yeah, and that can't, and sorry to interrupt, but that, that can't be ignored too about how much this is about money as much yeah. as the rhetoric of sport is about, well, we know, we know the fans want this, right? They need yeah. this to distract just, them. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's not the only thing. <laughs> no, we've gone this long. Like I can continue to YouTube, like the 2004 finals. It's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm, and we, ha- yeah. So it's just, there's no rush. Yeah, no rush. Um, I would like, I would hope that the, the NBA follows the lead of the WBA players and that they for the political side, I would, I think it's powerful to not let the ESPN, the reporters, make it about the basketball games. To make it about how you performed in this weird bubble arena, like it's. But I think to for the there to be a constant acknowledgement, this is a strange situation, and that we are here, uh, and to be very transparent, like and whether that's supporting uh, George Floyd or et cetera. But to always kind of re, to recenter that, and in a way, that would then make sports as not as always connected to this. That's kind of one hope. Um, do I think it'll happen for however long they're in there? Like I doubt it. I don't think it'll persist. That's I would hope that it doesn't just happen for like one day, but it happens. That's like a collective action. Um, on the court, I don't actually know. I kind of I I'm not. I would like LeBron to win just because I think it would. The Lakers win just because it would bother. Yeah, Stefan likes that. <laughs> just because I enjoy, I think the narr- I really get tired of sports narratives about like, is he the greatest or like, you know, is are of his rings, you know, all that stuff. I kind of just want LeBron to win one more. And so if he wins it now, it's great in the bubble. <laughs> so I'll disagree with that last point about one more. I'd like to see more than one, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you don't ever <laughs> you give Stefan a little bit these Lakers fans, is that all is that all you have to offer Stefan selfish for one I'm, I'm, I'm all in on this uh, Kyrie Irving redemption tour so I, I want more I want more of this for one and because like mm. he's actually put his he's actually like walked uh, walked the walk instead of just talking the talk and and I, that's after all of his missteps with you know flat earth and other things like i, I like i like seeing this it's it, there there is some some positives that emerge out of all the negative but also like to uh to alex's point obviously health is important i, I i'm i'm hopeful the bubble is successful only because it's already started like it really shouldn't have started as is the case for every other sporting league in the united states and worldwide but um i mean given that they've already they already have and given um like the number of people's livelihoods at stake. I, I want things to, to, to keep working. Um, but uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm hopeful that, like I'm, I'm guilty of not having tuned into the WNBA too much in recent years. I remember I, I was a fan in the beginning when, when they first started and, and the, the Sparks were doing really well and they were like annual champions. But <laughs> ever since then, I've, I've, I've sort of tuned, tuned, tuned it out. But 
I want that WNBA to, to emerge out of this. Like, Even you were in Minnesota. That was the only successful know, Minnesota team. So <laughs> that was the yeah, the legs. <laughs> um, I, I, I want the WNBA to, to come out of this like victorious and having gained a lot of viewership and fans because they absolutely deserve it. And uh, in many ways, they've, they've outshined, outshone, outshined the, 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 the NBA in, 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 their, in their actions. So I'm definitely supportive of them and would like to see more of that in the coming years and more of that in the NBA as well. I the Go Lakers. Uh, Sorry. I would like to, <laughs> I would I would like to see the Raptors beat the Lakers in the final. Um I want I would think it would be amazing to see the Raptors repeat. I like a lot of the players. I like their style. Um I'm conflicted I what I want to see happen. I, I agree with Alex and Stefan. I think it's an excellent point that the WNBA has taken the lead on this. I like that the NBA players are supporting the WNBA players and pointing to their political actions. The, the more eyes and the more attention to what the WNBA players are doing, the better. Uh, in terms of the NBA, I am probably the most confident of the three of us that the bubble will work, but that actually scares me. Um, I don't want players to get sick. But if the bubble fails, it could be another important model for how we're moving forward too fast and we shouldn't be having sports come back. And even with all the money invested, these players weren't able to stay safe. So as a larger population, maybe we shouldn't have colleges reopening, right? And if the NBA goes ahead smoothly and everything works, a lot, other, a lot of other institutions, which are much sloppier and have much fewer resources, are going to point to the NBA and say, look, well, they were able to play sports. Sports are back. It's kind of normal. Um, that scares me. I, I was out on Sunday biking around, and I saw a three-on-three basketball tournament happening. Um, and that wasn't good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm scared that the success of the NBA is actually a model for moving forward, as much as I want it to work. And I hope the attention is instead given to look at how incredibly difficult it was to keep the safety of people within the bubble. Look how long the quarantines were. Look how many tests had to be given. Um, look how when a player just went and got fast food, they had to be in, locked inside their hotel room for 10 days, which we can't do on college campuses. Um, but I think the intention will still be, look, we had an NBA championship. We had an NBA playoffs. So as much as I really want to see the Raptors win, I, and I don't want to see players get sick, I think it would almost be good for society if the bubble failed, which is a scary thing to say for me. Which is scary too, because we saw this happen with Gobert. Like we know what happened after Rudy and Gobert. Like the NBA was a huge reason why, like the shutdown, lock the initial shutdowns were happening. Right? People took it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also just want to say uh, in response to Stefan too, um, to mention Renee Montgomery, who is a player for the Atlanta Dream, who has just decided to not play basketball this year in order to continue full time with the uh, social justice issues and, and, and the movement that's going on right now. So I think that, um, I mean, we would be in a completely different place if LeBron had chosen to do the same. And I'm not saying he should or he shouldn't have, but just this idea that like the, the, the value that is placed on the player's body, like what they choose to do with that is is can have incredible consequences depending on the player as well um and so shout out to renee montgomery uh and and i mean also just to all the wma players that are also continuing to play i mean i'm not in their position but just to to celebrate her a little bit and maya moore who also um this is her will be her second season out um so that's just uh tough tough choices and uh and interesting 
uh, sort of forging a path that I, uh, I don't think has been, you know, it was like uh, other players in, in like the 1960s, I think that, that had done that more with Karim Abdul-Jabbar and uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, sort of just uh, the sacrifices there with Colin Kaepernick, but like the decision to like, just leave it all behind purposefully um, is not necessarily. So anyways, just interesting stuff. Before we leave, before we leave, uh, we had two votes for the Lakers and one for the Raptors. Do you have a team that you're rooting for? Mm, Well, it's hard to say anything else (laughs) at this moment. I know. Okay. So Alex, I have to tell you that I am now married was, I had, I should have married him in March, but because of Rudy Gobert, I didn't end up marrying him until July. Um, But my husband is a Thunder fan. He's from Oklahoma. Um, And since I grew up in the Bay area, like, shit got real when Kevin Durant went there. Like it wasn't a pretty couple of days. Like that was an ugly time in our relationship. Um, and this is one of the first times that I can like root for the thunder uh, and root alongside him, uh, without feeling anger, uh, or either of us feeling anger. So I think I'm just going to do that just for the sake of my personal relationship. And cause who knows? I mean, I also think, you know, with the thunder losing some stars and then, you know, Chris Paul, it could be a good story. Um, that being said, I understand the history. I'm aware of I'm aware of all of that trauma. So um, I also think the NBA needs to have a team in Kentucky, and that is the way to get a real political pull for getting the cops arrested that uh, that killed Breonna Taylor. Like I think that there's something like is that what it takes? Like having money invested or divested from a place um, to uh, in order to get some, some changes made. Um, so yeah, that was just a thought I had like halfway through our conversation. Like how could, how can the attorney general get this message more clearly? Yeah, there's not, I mean, that's one of those, those dead zones of the NBA also Cincinnati doesn't have, hasn't had a team for what, like 40 or 50 years either. So there's not really, I don't know who the closest team would be, but. Yeah. Um, Anyways, so yeah, just thunder maybe. It's it, we'll see. And also Thursday's my birthday, so the Emmy is coming back on my birthday. Oh, like, birthday. what does Happy that birthday. mean? Uh, so I, I think I will be spending some time in front of the TV, just like leaning into it and pretending that it's okay to do that. Wait, wait was that your actual final question? What does that mean that it's at your that's your birthday? <laughs> oh, it's like what does it mean I don't know that if, it's my birthday I don't know and Abby's coming back on that day? Like, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I don't know if our research can say anything about that. <laughs> I know. We'll just get back to the data and let me know what what um what happens for your analysis. Um this was really it great. It was very smart of you to, to mention that at the end of the interview though. That it's my birthday? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 you, that you're rooting for the Thunder. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alex was not participating. I know, but no chance. No chance. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I had Boom, I had Sam Anderson, the Boomtown author, on my podcast, oh. and I have read that book a couple of times. And so, like, I, I know about, I know about what went down, you know, and I know it was rough. And uh, yeah. Anyways, it's okay. There'll, maybe there'll be a team in the future. Never know. It might come back. Sure. And I'll root for that. You know, I'll, I'll do something symbolic then. <laughs> that is my symbolic gesture. Um, rooting for this, the future of the, the supersonics. Um, okay. Well, this was so great. Thank you guys for making all this time. This was, yeah, this was awesome. It took a year, which uh, <laughs> says a lot about 
the writing process in academia. I think I, I think I talked to you right when we were starting to work on the paper and now, now we're done. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. I mean, well, now it's out for review, which means it'll be another year before anyone gets to read it. So <laughs> at least, at least. Right. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was really Good. great. Okay. So thanks so much guys for making this time and coming on and, and being so willing to share your work. And I just feel really grateful for the conversation. Thanks again for having us. Enjoy your birthday. Enjoy the reopening. Um, we'll make sure to celebrate both on Thursday. <laughs> Thank you. Happy birthday and be safe. <laughs> Thank you. It's awesome. Happy birthday. And I hope the Thunder <laughs> lose every game. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Uh, out, of, out of all things we talked about, I did not mean to make this about my birthday. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. Um, and I I will, when the Thunder are, when we're in game seven, the Thunder are in game seven of the final of you. So, no problem. All right. Okay. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Take care. All right. See you all.